0: Their passion, however, was an elevated one, at least in their minds. With the lonely elitism of young German coffee-house denizens who have read the philosophy of Schopenhauer once too often, they unabashedly articulated the mystical distinction between their own rarefied spirits and the baser instincts and urges of the masses. In the case of my parents, as with most people, the senses exercise a direct control over the emotions, he wrote her amid the family wars of August. With us, thanks to the fortunate circumstances in which we live, the enjoyment of life is vastly broadened. To his credit, Einstein reminded Marich and himself, that we mustn't forget that many existences like my parents make our existence possible. The simple and honest instincts of people like his parents had ensured the progress of civilization. Thus, I am trying to protect my parents without compromising anything that is important to me. And that means you, sweetheart. In an attempt to please his mother, Einstein became a charming son at their grand hotel in Melktau. He found the endless meals excessive and the overdressed patrons to be indolent and pampered, but he dutifully played his violin for his mother's friends, made polite conversation, and feigned a cheerful mood. It worked. My popularity among the guests here and my music successes act as a balm on my mother's heart. As for his father, Einstein decided that the best way to assuage him, as well as to draw off some of the emotional charge generated by his relationship with Maric, was to visit him back in Milan, tour some of his new power plants, and learn about the family firm. So I can take Papa's place in an emergency. Hermann Einstein seemed so pleased that he promised to take his son to Venice after the inspection tour, I'm leaving for Italy on Saturday to partake of the holy sacraments administered by my father, but the valiant Swabian is not afraid. The phrase, valiant Swabian, used often by Einstein to refer to himself, comes from the poem, Swabian Tale by Ludwig Uhland. Einstein's visit with his father went well, for the most part. A distant yet dutiful son, he had fretted mightily about each family financial crisis perhaps even more than his father did. But business was good for the moment, and that lifted Hermann Einstein's spirits. My father is a completely different man now that he has no more financial worries, Einstein wrote Marge. Only once did the Dolly affair intrude enough to make him consider cutting short his visit, but this threat so alarmed his father that Einstein stuck to the original plans. He seemed flattered that his father appreciated both his company and his willingness to pay attention to the family business. Even though Einstein occasionally denigrated the idea of being an engineer, it was possible that he could have followed that course at the end of the summer of 1900, especially if, on their trip to Venice, his father had asked him to, or if fate intervened so that he was needed to take his father's place. He was, after all, a low-ranked graduate of a teaching college without a teaching job, without any research accomplishments, and certainly without academic patrons. Had he made such a choice in 1900, Einstein would have likely become a good enough engineer, but probably not a great one. Over the ensuing years, he would dabble with inventions as a hobby and come up with some good concepts for devices ranging from noiseless refrigerators to a machine that measured very low voltage electricity. But none resulted in a significant engineering breakthrough or marketplace success. Though he would have been a more brilliant engineer than his father or uncle, it is not clear that he would have been any more financially successful. Among the many surprising things about the life of Albert Einstein was the trouble he had getting an academic job. Indeed, it would be an astonishing nine years after his graduation from the Zurich Polytechnic in 1900, and four years after the miracle year in which he not only upended physics, but also finally got a doctoral dissertation accepted, before he would be offered a job as a junior professor. The delay was not due to a lack of desire on his part. In the middle of August 1900, between his family vacation in Mechtal and his visit to his father in Milan, Einstein stopped back in Zurich to see about getting a post as an assistant to a professor at the Polytechnic. It was typical that each graduate would find, if he wanted, some such role, and Einstein was confident it would happen. In the meantime, he rejected a friend's offer to help him get a job at an insurance company, dismissing it as an eight-hour day of mindless drudgery. As he told Marich, one must avoid stultifying affairs. The problem was that the two physics professors at the Polytechnic were acutely aware of his impudence, but not of his genius. Getting a job with Professor Pernay, who had reprimanded him, was not even a consideration. As for Professor Weber, he had developed such an allergy to Einstein that when no other graduates of the physics and math department were available to become his assistant, he instead hired two students from the engineering division. That left math professor Adolf Hurwitz. When one of Hurwitz's assistants got a job teaching at a high school, Einstein exulted to Marich. This means I will become Herwitz's servant, God willing. Unfortunately, he had skipped most of Hurwitz's classes, a slight that apparently had not been forgotten. By late September, Einstein was still staying with his parents in Milan and had not received an offer. I plan on going to Zurich on October 1st to talk with Hurwitz personally about the position, he said. It's certainly better than writing. While there, he also planned to look for possible tutoring jobs that could tide them over while Maric prepared to retake her final exams. No matter what happens, we'll have the most wonderful life in the world pleasant work and being together. And what's more, we now answer to no one, can stand on our own two feet and enjoy our youth to the utmost. Who could have it any better? When we have scraped together enough money, we can buy bicycles and take a bike tour every couple of weeks. Einstein ended up deciding to write Hurwitz instead of visiting him, which was probably a mistake. His two letters do not stand as models for future generations seeking to learn how to write a job application. He readily conceded that he did not show up at Hurwitz's calculus classes and was more interested in physics than math. Since lack of time prevented me from taking part in the mathematics seminar, he rather lamely said, there is nothing in my favor except the fact that I attended most of the lectures offered. Rather presumptuously, he said he was eager for an answer because The granting of citizenship in Zurich, for which I have applied, has been made conditional upon my proving that I have a permanent job. Einstein's impatience was matched by his confidence. Herbert still hasn't written me more, he said only three days after sending his letter, but I have hardly any doubt that I will get the position. He did not. Indeed, he managed to become the only person graduating in his section of the Polytechnic who was not offered a job. I was suddenly abandoned by everyone, he later recalled. By the end of October, 1900, he and Maritz were both back in Zurich, where he spent most of his days hanging out at her apartment, reading and writing. On his citizenship application that month, he wrote none on the question asking his religion, and for his occupation he wrote, I am giving private lessons in mathematics until I get a permanent position. Throughout that fall, he was able to find only eight sporadic tutoring jobs, and his relatives had ended their financial support. But Einstein put up an optimistic front. We support ourselves by private lessons, if we can ever pick up some, which is still very doubtful, he wrote a friend of Maric's. Isn't this a journeyman's or even a gypsy's life? But I believe that we will remain cheerful in it, as ever. What kept him happy, in addition to Maric's presence, were the theoretical papers he was writing on his own. Einstein's First Published Paper The first of these papers was on a topic familiar to most school kids, the capillary effect, that, among other things, causes water to cling to the side of a straw and curve upward. Although he later called this essay worthless, it is interesting from a biographical perspective. Not only is it Einstein's first published paper, but it shows him heartily embracing an important premise, one not yet fully accepted, that would be at the core of much of his work over the next five years. That molecules, and their constituent atoms, actually exist, and that many natural phenomena can be explained by analyzing how these particles interact with one another. During his vacation in the summer of 1900, Einstein had been reading the work of Ludwig Boltzmann, who had developed a theory of gases based on the behavior of countless molecules bouncing around. The Boltzmann is absolutely magnificent, he enthused to Maric in September. I am firmly convinced of the correctness of the principles of his theory. For instance, I am convinced that in the case of gases, we are really dealing with discrete particles of definite finite size, which move according to certain conditions. To understand capillarity, however, required looking at the forces acting between molecules in a liquid, not a gas. Such molecules attract one another, which accounts for the surface tension of a liquid, or the fact that drops hold together, as well as for the capillary effect. Einstein's idea was that these forces might be analogous to Newton's gravitational forces, in which two objects are attracted to each other in proportion to their mass, and in inverse proportion to their distance from one another. Einstein looked at whether the capillary effect showed such a relationship to the atomic weight of various liquid substances. He was encouraged, so he decided to see if he could find some experimental data to test the theory further. The results on capillarity I recently obtained in Zurich seem to be entirely new, despite their simplicity, he wrote Marich. When we're back in Zurich, we'll try to get some empirical data on this subject. If this yields a law of nature, we'll send the results to the Annalen. He did end up sending the paper in December 1900 to the Annalen der Physik, Europe's leading physics journal, which published it the following March. Written without the elegance or verve of his later papers, it conveyed what is, at best, a tenuous conclusion. I started from the simple idea of attractive forces among the molecules, and I tested the consequences experimentally, he wrote. I took gravitational forces as an analogy. At the end of the paper, he declares limply, The question of whether and how our forces are related to gravitational forces must therefore be left completely open for the time being. The paper elicited no comments and contributed nothing to the history of physics. Its basic conjecture was wrong, as the distance dependence is not the same for differing pairs of molecules, but it did get him published for the first time. That meant that he now had a printed article to attach to the job-seeking letters with which he was beginning to spam professors all over Europe. In his letter to marich Einstein had used the term we when discussing plans to publish the paper. In two letters written the month after it appeared, Einstein referred to our theory of molecular forces and our investigation. Thus was launched a historical debate over how much credit Marich deserves for helping Einstein devise his theories. In this case, she mainly seemed to be involved in looking up some data for him to use. His letters conveyed his latest thoughts on molecular forces, but hers contained no substantive science. And in a letter to her best friend, Marich sounded as if she had settled into the role of supportive lover rather than scientific partner. Albert has written a paper in physics that will probably be published very soon in the der Physik. she wrote. You can imagine how very proud I am of my darling. This is not just an everyday paper, but a very significant one. It deals with the theory of liquids. Jobless Anguish It had been almost four years since Einstein had renounced his German citizenship, and ever since then he had been stateless. Each month he put aside some money toward the fee he would need to pay to become a Swiss citizen, a status he deeply desired. One reason was that he admired the Swiss system, its democracy, and its gentle respect for individuals and their privacy. I like the Swiss because, by and large, they are more humane than the other people among whom I have lived, he later said. There were also practical reasons. In order to work as a civil servant or a teacher in a state school, he would have to be a Swiss citizen. The Zurich authorities examined him rather thoroughly, and they even sent to Milan for a report on his parents. By February 1901, they were satisfied, and he was made a citizen. He would retain that designation his entire life, even as he accepted citizenships in Germany, again, Austria, and the United States. Indeed, he was so eager to be a Swiss citizen that he put aside his anti-military sentiments and presented himself, as required, for military service. He was rejected for having sweaty feet, hyperidrosis ped, flat feet, pes planus, and varicose veins, varicosis. The Swiss army was apparently quite discriminating, and so his military service book was stamped, UNFIT. A few weeks after he got his citizenship, however, his parents insisted that he come back to Milan and live with them. They had decreed, at the end of 1900, that he could not stay in Zurich past Easter unless he got a job there. When Easter came, he was still unemployed. Maric, not unreasonably, assumed that his summons to Milan was due to his parents' antipathy toward her. What utterly depressed me was the fact that our separation had to come about in such an unnatural way. "'on account of slanders and intrigues,' she wrote her friend. "'With an absent-mindedness he was later to make iconic, "'Einstein left behind in Zurich his nightshirt, toothbrush, comb, hairbrush—back then he used one—and other toiletries. "'Send everything along to my sister,' he instructed Marich, "'so she can bring them home with her.' Four days later he added, "'Hold on to my umbrella for the time being. "'We'll figure out something to do with it later.' Both in Zurich and then in Milan, Einstein churned out job-seeking letters ever more pleading to professors around Europe. They were accompanied by his paper on the capillary effect, which proved not particularly impressive. He rarely even received the courtesy of a response. I will soon have graced every physicist from the North Sea to the southern tip of Italy with my offer, he wrote Maric. By April 1901, Einstein was reduced to buying a pile of postcards with postage-paid reply attachments in the forlorn hope that he would at least get an answer. In the two cases where these postcard pleas have survived, they have become, rather amusingly, prized collector's items. One of them to a Dutch professor is now on display in the Leiden Museum for the History of Science. In both cases, the return reply attachment was not used. Einstein did not even get the courtesy of a rejection. I leave no stone unturned and do not give up my sense of humor, he wrote to his friend Marcel Grossmann. God created the donkey and gave him a thick skin. Among the great scientists, Einstein wrote, was Wilhelm Ostwald, professor of chemistry in Leipzig, whose contributions to the theory of dilution were to earn him a Nobel Prize. Your work on general chemistry inspired me to write the enclosed article, Einstein said. Then Flattery turned to plaintiveness as he asked whether you might have use for a mathematical physicist. Einstein concluded by pleading, I am without money, and only a position of this kind would enable me to continue my studies. He got no answer. Einstein wrote again two weeks later using the pretext, I am not sure whether I included my address in the earlier letter. Your judgment of my paper matters very much to me. There was still no answer. Einstein's father, with whom he was living in Milan, quietly shared his son's anguish and tried, in a painfully sweet manner, to help. When no answer came after the second letter to Ostwald, Hermann Einstein took it upon himself, without his son's knowledge, to make an unusual and awkward effort, suffused with heart-wrenching emotion, to prevail upon Ostwald himself. Please forgive a father who is so bold as to turn to you, esteemed Herr Professor, in the interest of his son. Albert is twenty-two years old. He studied at the Zurich Polytechnic for four years, and he passed his exam with flying colors last summer. Since then he has been trying unsuccessfully to get a position as a teaching assistant, which would enable him to continue his education in physics. All those in a position to judge praise his talents. I can assure you that he is extraordinarily studious and diligent, and clings with great love to his science. He therefore feels profoundly unhappy about his current lack of a job, and he becomes more and more convinced that he has gone off the tracks with his career. In addition, he is oppressed by the thought that he is a burden on us, people of modest means. Since it is you whom my son seems to admire and esteem more than any other scholar in physics, It is you to whom I have taken the liberty of turning with the humble request to read his paper and to write to him, if possible, a few words of encouragement, so that he might recover his joy in living and working. If, in addition, you could secure him an assistance position, my gratitude would know no bounds. I beg you to forgive me for my impudence in writing you, and my son does not know anything about my unusual step. Ostfold still did not answer. However, in one of history's nice ironies, he would become, nine years later, the first person to nominate Einstein for the Nobel Prize. Einstein was convinced that his nemesis at the Zurich Polytechnic, physics professor Heinrich Weber, was behind the difficulties. Having hired two engineers, rather than Einstein as his own assistant, he was apparently now giving him unfavorable references. After applying for a job with Goettingen Professor Eduard Rieke, Einstein despaired to Maritch. I have more or less given up the position as lost. I cannot believe that Weber would let such a good opportunity pass without doing some mischief. Maritch advised him to write to Weber, confronting him directly, and Einstein reported back that he had. He should at least know that he cannot do these things behind my back. I wrote to him that I know that my appointment now depends on his report alone. It didn't work. Einstein again got turned down. Rika's rejection hasn't surprised me, he wrote Marich, I'm completely convinced that Weber is to blame. He became so discouraged that, at least for the moment, he felt it futile to continue his search. Under these circumstances, it no longer makes sense to write further to professors, since, should things get far enough along, it is certain they would all inquire with Weber, and he would again give a poor reference. To Grossmann he lamented, I could have found a job long ago had it not been for Weber's underhandedness. To what extent did anti-Semitism play a role? Einstein came to believe that it was a factor, which led him to seek work in Italy where he felt it was not so pronounced. One of the main obstacles in getting a position is absent here, namely anti-Semitism, which in German-speaking countries is as unpleasant as it is a hindrance, he wrote Maritch. She, in turn, lamented to her friend about her lover's difficulties. You know my sweetheart has a sharp tongue, and, moreover, he is a Jew. In his effort to find work in Italy, Einstein enlisted one of the friends he had made while studying in Zurich, an engineer named Michele Angelo Besso. Like Einstein, Besso was from a middle-class Jewish family that had wandered around Europe and eventually settled in Italy. He was six years older than Einstein— and by the time they met he had already graduated from the Polytechnic and was working for an engineering firm. He and Einstein forged a close friendship that would last for the rest of their lives. They died within weeks of each other in 1955. Over the years, Besso and Einstein would share both the most intimate personal confidences and the loftiest scientific notions. As Einstein wrote in one of the 229 extant letters they exchanged, "'Nobody else is so close to me. Nobody knows me so well. Nobody is so kindly disposed to me as you are.'" Besso had a delightful intellect, but he lacked focus, drive, and diligence. Like Einstein, he had once been asked to leave high school because of his insubordinate attitude. He sent a petition complaining about a math teacher. Einstein called Besso an awful weakling, who cannot rouse himself to any action in life or scientific creation, but who has an extraordinarily fine mind, whose working, though disorderly, I watch with great delight. Einstein had introduced Besso to Anna Vinteler, a Marie's sister, whom he ended up marrying. By 1901 he had moved to Trieste with her. When Einstein caught up with him, he found Besso as smart, as funny, and as maddeningly unfocused as ever. He had recently been asked by his boss to inspect a power station, and he decided to leave the night before to make sure that he arrived on time. But he missed his train, then failed to get there the next day, and finally arrived on the third day, but to his horror realizes that he has forgotten what he's supposed to do. So he sent a postcard back to the office asking them to resend his instructions. It was the boss's assessment that Besso was completely useless and almost unbalanced. Einstein's assessment of Besso was more loving. Michele is an awful schlomiel, he reported to Marich, using the Yiddish word for a hapless bumbler. One evening, Besso and Einstein spent almost four hours talking about science, including the properties of the mysterious ether and the definition of absolute rest. These ideas would burst into bloom four years later in the relativity theory that he would devise with Besso as his sounding board. He's interested in our research, Einstein wrote marriage, though he often misses the big picture by worrying about petty considerations. Besso had some connections that could, Einstein hoped, be useful. His uncle was a mathematics professor at the Polytechnic in Milan, and Einstein's plan was to have Besso provide an introduction. I'll grab him by the collar and drag him to his uncle, where I'll do the talking myself. Besso was able to persuade his uncle to write letters on Einstein's behalf, but nothing came of the effort. Instead, Einstein spent most of 1901 juggling temporary teaching assignments and some tutoring. It was Einstein's other close friend from Zurich, his classmate and math note-taker, Marcel Grossmann, who ended up finally getting Einstein a job, though not one that would have been expected. Just when Einstein was beginning to despair, Grossmann wrote that there was likely to be an opening as an examiner at the Swiss Patent Office, located in Bern. Grossmann's father knew the director and was willing to recommend Einstein. I was deeply moved by your devotion and compassion, which did not let you forget your luckless friend, Einstein replied. I would be delighted to get such a nice job, and that I would spare no effort to live up to your recommendation. To Maric, he exulted. Just think what a wonderful job this would be for me. I'll be mad with joy if something should come of that. It would take months, he knew, before the patent office job would materialize, assuming that it ever did. So he accepted a temporary post at a technical school in Winterthur for two months, filling in for a teacher on military leave. The hours would be long, and worse yet, he would have to teach descriptive geometry neither then nor later his strongest field. But the valiant Swabian is not afraid, he proclaimed, repeating one of his favorite poetic phrases. In the meantime, he and Maric would have the chance to take a romantic vacation together, one that would have fateful consequences. Lake Como, May 1901 You absolutely must come see me in Como, you little witch! Einstein wrote Marich at the end of April 1901. You'll see for yourself how bright and cheerful I've become, and how all my brow-knitting is gone. The family disputes and frustrating job search had caused him to be snappish, but he promised that was now over. It was only out of nervousness that I was mean to you, he apologized. To make it up to her, he proposed that they should have a romantic and sensuous tryst in one of the world's most romantic and sensuous places. Lake Como, the grandest of the jewel-like alpine finger lakes high on the border of Italy and Switzerland, where, in early May, the lush foliage bursts forth under majestic snow-capped peaks. Bring my blue dressing gown so we can wrap ourselves up in it, he said. I promise you an outing the likes of which you've never seen. Marich quickly accepted, but then changed her mind. She had received a letter from her family in Novi Sad, that robs me of all desire, not only for having fun, but for life itself. He should make the trip on his own, she sulked. It seems I can have nothing without being punished. But the next day she changed her mind again. I wrote you a little card yesterday while in the worst of moods because of a letter I received, but when I read your letter today, I became a bit more cheerful, since I see how much you love me, so I think we'll take that trip after all. And thus it was that early on the morning of Sunday, May fifth, nineteen 1901, Albert Einstein was waiting for Maleva Maric at the train station in the village of Como, Italy, with open arms and a pounding heart. They spent the day there, admiring its Gothic cathedral and walled old town, then took one of the stately white steamers that hopped from village to village along the banks of the lake. They stopped to visit Villa Carlotta, the most luscious of all the famous mansions that dot the shore, with its frescoed ceilings, a version of Antonio Canova's erotic sculpture Cupid in Psyche, and five hundred species of plants. Marich later wrote a friend how much she admired the splendid garden, which I preserved in my heart, the more so because we were not allowed to swipe a single flower. After spending the night in an inn, they decided to hike through the mountain pass to Switzerland, but found it still covered with up to twenty feet of snow. So they hired a small sleigh, the kind they use that has just enough room for two people in love with each other, and a coachman stands on a little plank in the rear and prattles all the time and calls you Signora, Marich wrote. Could you think of anything more beautiful? The snow was falling merrily as far as the eye could see, so that this cold white infinity gave me the shivers and I held my sweetheart firmly in my arms under the coats and shawls covering us. On the way down, they stomped and kicked at the snow to produce little avalanches, so as to properly scare the world below. A few days later, Einstein recalled how beautiful it was the last time you let me press your dear little person against me in that most natural way. And in that most natural way, Maleva Maric became pregnant with Albert Einstein's child. After returning to Winterthur, where he was a substitute teacher, Einstein wrote Marich a letter that made reference to her pregnancy. Oddly, or perhaps not oddly at all, he began by delving into matters scientific rather than personal. I just read a wonderful paper by Leonard on the generation of cathode rays by ultraviolet light, he started. Under the influence of this beautiful piece, I am filled with such happiness and joy that I must share some of it with you. Einstein would soon revolutionize science by building on Lennart's paper to produce a theory of light quanta that explained this photoelectric effect. Even so, it is rather surprising, or at least amusing, that when he rhapsodized about sharing happiness and joy with his newly pregnant lover, he was referring to a paper on beams of electrons. Only after this scientific exaltation came a brief reference to their expected child, whom Einstein referred to as a boy. How are you, darling? How's the boy? He went on to display an odd notion of what parenting would be like. Can you imagine how pleasant it will be when we're able to work again, completely undisturbed, and with no one around to tell us what to do? Most of all, he tried to be reassuring. He would find a job, he pledged, even if it meant going into the insurance business. They would create a comfortable home together. Be happy, and don't fret, darling. I won't leave you, and will bring everything to a happy conclusion. You just have to be patient. You will see that my arms are not so bad to rest in, even if things are beginning a little awkwardly. Maric was preparing to retake her graduation exams, and she was hoping to go on to get a doctorate and become a physicist. Both she and her parents had invested enormous amounts, emotionally and financially, in that goal over the years. She could have, if she had wished, terminated her pregnancy. Zurich was then a center of a burgeoning birth control industry, which included a mail-order abortion drug firm based there. Instead, she decided that she wanted to have Einstein's child, even though he was not yet ready or willing to marry her. Having a child out of wedlock was rebellious, given their upbringings, but not uncommon. The official statistics for Zurich in 1901 show that 12% of births were illegitimate. Residents who were Austro-Hungarian, moreover, were much more likely to get pregnant while unmarried. In southern Hungary, 33% of births were illegitimate. Serbs had the highest rate of illegitimate births, Jews, by far, the lowest. The decision caused Einstein to focus on the future. I will look for a position immediately, no matter how humble it is, he told her. My scientific goals and my personal vanity will not prevent me from accepting even the most subordinate position. He decided to call Besso's father, as well as the director of the local insurance company and he promised to marry her as soon as he settled into a job. Then no one can cast a stone on your dear little head. The pregnancy could also resolve, or so he hoped, the issues they faced with their families. When your parents and mine are presented with a fete accompli, they'll just have to reconcile themselves to it as best they can. Marich, bedridden in Zurich with pregnancy sickness, was thrilled. So, sweetheart, you want to look for a job immediately and have me move in with you. It was a vague proposal, but she immediately pronounced herself happy to agree. Of course, it mustn't involve accepting a really bad position, darling, she added. That would make me feel terrible. At her sister's suggestion, she tried to convince Einstein to visit her parents in Serbia for the summer vacation. It would make me so happy, she begged, and when my parents see the two of us physically in front of them, all their doubts will evaporate. But Einstein, to her dismay, decided to spend the summer vacation again with his mother and sister in the Alps. As a result, he was not there to help and encourage her at the end of July 1901, when she retook her exams. Perhaps as a consequence of her pregnancy and personal situation, Mileva ended up failing for the second time, once again getting a 4.0 out of six, and once again being the only one in her group not to pass. Thus it was that Maleva Maric found herself resigned to giving up her dream of being a scientific scholar. She visited her home in Serbia, alone, and told her parents about her academic failure and her pregnancy. Before leaving, she asked Einstein to send her father a letter describing their plans, and presumably pledging to marry her. Will you send me the letter so I can see what you've written? she asked. By and by I'll give him the necessary information the unpleasant news as well. Disputes with Drude and others Einstein's impudence and contempt for convention, traits that were abetted by marriage, were evident in his science as well as in his personal life in 1901. That year, the unemployed enthusiast engaged in a series of tangles with academic authorities. The squabbles show that Einstein had no qualms about challenging those in power. In fact, it seemed to infuse him with glee. As he proclaimed to Joost Winteler in the midst of his disputes that year, blind respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. It would prove a worthy credo, one suitable for being carved on his coat of arms, if he had ever wanted such a thing. His struggles that year would also reveal something more subtle about Einstein's scientific thinking. He had an urge, indeed a compulsion, To unify concepts from different branches of physics. It is a glorious feeling to discover the unity of a set of phenomena that seem at first to be completely separate, he wrote to his friend Grossmann, as he embarked that spring on an attempt to tie his work on capillarity to Boltzmann's theory of gases. That sentence, more than any other, sums up the faith that underlay Einstein's scientific mission from his first paper until his last scribbled field equations, guiding him with the same sure sense that was displayed by the needle of his childhood compass. Among the potentially unifying concepts that were mesmerizing Einstein, and much of the physics world, were those that sprang from kinetic theory, which had been developed in the late 19th century by applying the principles of mechanics to phenomena such as heat transfer and the behavior of gases. This involved regarding a gas, for example, as a collection of a huge number of tiny particles, in this case, molecules made up of one or more atoms that careen around freely and occasionally collide with one another. Kinetic theory spurred the growth of statistical mechanics, which describes the behavior of a large number of particles using statistical calculations. It was, of course, impossible to trace each molecule and each collision in a gas but knowing the statistical behavior gave a workable theory of how billions of molecules behaved under varying conditions. Scientists proceeded to apply these concepts not only to the behavior of gases, but also to phenomena that occurred in liquids and solids, including electrical conductivity and radiation. The opportunity arose to apply the methods of the kinetic theory of gases to completely different branches of physics. Einstein's close friend Paul Ehrenfest himself an expert in the field, later wrote. Above all, the theory was applied to the motion of electrons in metals, to the Brownian motion of microscopically small particles in suspensions, and to the theory of black-body radiation. Although many scientists were using atomism to explore their own specialties, for Einstein it was a way to make connections and develop unifying theories between a variety of disciplines. In April 1901, for example, he adapted the molecular theories he had used to explain the capillary effect in liquids and applied them to the diffusion of gas molecules. I've got an extremely lucky idea, which will make it possible to apply our theory of molecular forces to gases as well, he wrote Marich. To Grossmann he noted, I am now convinced that my theory of atomic attractive forces can also be extended to gases. Next, he became interested in the conduction of heat and electricity, which led him to study Paul Drude's electron theory of metals. As the Einstein scholar Jürgen Renn notes, Drude's electron theory and Boltzmann's kinetic theory of gas do not just happen to be two arbitrary subjects of interest to Einstein, but rather they share an important common property with several other of his early research topics. They are two examples of the application of atomistic ideas to physical and chemical problems. Drude's electron theory posited that there are particles in metal that move freely, as molecules of gas do, and thereby conduct both heat and electricity. When Einstein looked into it, he was pleased with it in parts. I have a study in my hands by Paul Drude on the electron theory, which is written to my heart's desire, even though it contains some very sloppy things, he told Marich. A month later, with his usual lack of deference to authority, he declared, Perhaps I'll write to Drude privately to point out his mistakes. And so he did. In a letter to Drude in June, Einstein pointed out what he thought were two mistakes. He will hardly have anything sensible to refute me with, Einstein gloated to Marrich, because my objections are very straightforward. Perhaps under the charming illusion that showing an eminent scientist his purported lapses is a good method for getting a job, Einstein included a request for one in his letter. Surprisingly, Drude replied. Not surprisingly, he dismissed Einstein's objections. Einstein was outraged. It is such manifest proof of the wretchedness of its author that no further comment by me is necessary, Einstein said when forwarding Drude's reply to Marich. From now on, I'll no longer turn to such people, and will instead attack them mercilessly in the journals, as they deserve. It is no wonder that little by little one becomes a misanthrope. Einstein also vented his frustration to Jost Wintler, his father figure from Arau, in a letter that included his declaration about a blind respect for authority being the greatest enemy of truth. He responds by pointing out that another infallible colleague of his shares his opinion. I'll soon make it hot for the man with a masterly publication. The published papers of Einstein do not identify this infallible colleague cited by Drude, but some sleuthing by Wren has turned up a letter from Maritch that declares it to be Ludwig Boltzmann. That explains why Einstein proceeded to immerse himself in Boltzmann's writings. I have been engrossed in Boltzmann's works on the kinetic theory of gases. He wrote Grossmann in September and these last few days I wrote a short paper myself that provides the missing keystone in the chain of proofs that he started. Boltzmann, then at the University of Leipzig, was Europe's master of statistical physics. He had helped to develop the kinetic theory and defend the faith that atoms and molecules actually exist. In doing so, he found it necessary to reconceive the great second law of thermodynamics. This law has many equivalent formulations. It says that heat flows naturally from hot to cold, but not the reverse. Another way to describe the second law is in terms of entropy, the degree of disorder and randomness in a system. Any spontaneous process tends to increase the entropy of a system. For example, perfume molecules drift out of an open bottle and into a room, but don't, at least in our common experience, spontaneously gather themselves together and all drift back into the bottle. The problem for Boltzmann was that mechanical processes, such as molecules bumping around, could each be reversed according to Newton. So a spontaneous decrease in entropy would, at least in theory, be possible. The absurdity of positing that diffused perfume molecules could gather back into a bottle, or that heat could flow from a cold body to a hot one spontaneously, was flung against Boltzmann by opponents such as Wilhelm Ostwald, who did not believe in the reality of atoms and molecules. The proposition that all natural phenomena can ultimately be reduced to mechanical ones cannot even be taken as a useful working hypothesis. It is simply a mistake, Ostwald declared. The irreversibility of natural phenomena proves the existence of processes that cannot be described by mechanical equations. Boltzmann responded by revising the second law, so that it was not absolute, but merely a statistical near certainty. It was theoretically possible that millions of perfume molecules could randomly bounce around in a way that they all put themselves back into a bottle at a certain moment, but that was exceedingly unlikely, perhaps trillions of times less likely than that a new deck of cards shuffled a hundred times would end up back in its pristine rank-and-suit precise order. When Einstein rather immodestly declared in September 1901 that he was filling in a keystone that was missing in Boltzmann's chain of proofs, he said he planned to publish it soon. But first he sent a paper to the der Physik that involved an electrical method for investigating molecular forces, which used calculations derived from experiments others had done using salt solutions and an electrode. Then he published his critique of Boltzmann's theories. He noted that they worked well in explaining heat transfer in gases, but had not yet been properly generalized for other realms. Great as the achievements of the kinetic theory of heat have been in the domain of gas theory, he wrote, the science of mechanics has not yet been able to produce an adequate foundation for the general theory of heat. His aim was to close this gap. This was all quite presumptuous for an undistinguished polytechnic student, who had not been able to get either a doctorate or a job. Einstein himself later admitted that these papers added little to the body of physics wisdom. But they do indicate what was at the heart of his 1901 challenges to Drude and Boltzmann. Their theories, he felt, did not live up to the maxim he had proclaimed to Grossmann earlier that year about how glorious it was to discover an underlying unity in a set of phenomena that seemed completely separate. In the meantime, in November 1901, Einstein had submitted an attempt at a doctoral dissertation to Professor Alfred Kleiner at the University of Zurich. The dissertation has not survived, but Marge told a friend that it deals with research into the molecular forces in gases using various known phenomena. Einstein was confident. He won't dare reject my dissertation, he said of Kleiner, otherwise the short-sighted man is of little use to me. By December, Kleiner had not even responded, and Einstein started worrying that perhaps the professor's fragile dignity might make him uncomfortable accepting a dissertation that denigrated the work of such masters as Drude and Boltzmann. If he dares to reject my dissertation, then I'll publish his rejection along with my paper and make a fool of him, Einstein said. But if he accepts it, then we'll see what good old Herr Drude has to say. Eager for a resolution, he decided to go see Kleiner personally. Rather surprisingly, the meeting went well. Kleiner admitted he had not yet read the dissertation, and Einstein told him to take his time. They then proceeded to discuss various ideas that Einstein was developing, some of which would eventually bear fruit in his relativity theory. Kleiner promised Einstein that he could count on him for a recommendation the next time a teaching job came up. He's not... Quite as stupid as I'd thought, was Einstein's verdict. Moreover, he's a good fellow. Kleiner may have been a good fellow, but he did not like Einstein's dissertation when he finally got around to reading it. In particular, he was unhappy about Einstein's attack on the scientific establishment. So he rejected it. More precisely, he told Einstein to withdraw it voluntarily, which permitted him to get back his 230-franc fee— According to a book written by Einstein's stepson in law, Kleiner's action was out of consideration to his colleague Ludwig Boltzmann, whose train of reasoning Einstein had sharply criticized. Einstein, lacking such sensitivity, was persuaded by a friend to send the attack directly to Boltzmann. Lieserl Marcel Grossmann had mentioned to Einstein that there was likely to be a job at the patent office for him but it had not yet materialized. So, five months later, he gently reminded Grossmann that he still needed help. Noticing in the newspaper that Grossmann had won a job teaching at a Swiss high school, Einstein expressed his great joy, and then plaintively added, I, too, applied for that position, but I did it only so that I wouldn't have to tell myself that I was too faint-hearted to apply. In the fall of 1901, Einstein took an even humbler job as a tutor at a little private academy in Schaffhausen, a village on the Rhine, twenty miles north of Zurich. The work consisted solely of tutoring a rich English schoolboy who was there. To be taught by Einstein would someday seem a bargain at any price, but at the time the proprietor of the school, Jakob Nusch, was getting the bargain. He was charging the child's family four thousand francs a year while paying Einstein only 150 francs a month, plus providing room and board. Einstein continued to promise Marich that she would get a good husband as soon as this becomes feasible, but he was now despairing about the patent job. The position in Berne has not yet been advertised, so that I am really giving up hope for it. Marich was eager to be with him, but her pregnancy made it impossible for them to be together in public. So she spent most of November at a small hotel in a neighboring village. Their relationship was becoming strained. Despite her pleas, Einstein came only infrequently to visit her, often claiming that he did not have the spare money. You'll surely surprise me, right? She begged, after getting yet another note cancelling a visit. Her pleadings and anger alternated, often in the same letter. If you only knew how terribly homesick I am you would surely come. Are you really out of money? That's nice. The man earns one hundred fifty francs, has room and board provided, and at the end of the month doesn't have a cent to his name. Don't use that as an excuse for Sunday, please. If you don't get any money by then, I will send you some. If only you knew how much I want to see you again. I think about you all day long, and even more at night.' Einstein's impatience with authority soon pitted him against the proprietor of the academy. He tried to cajole his tee to move to Bern with him and pay him directly. But the boy's mother balked. Then Einstein asked Nusch to give him his meal money in cash so that he would not have to eat with his family. "'You know what our conditions are,' Neusch replied. "'There is no reason to deviate from them.' A surly Einstein threatened to find new arrangements, and Nush backed down in a rage. In a line that could be considered yet another maxim for his life, Einstein recounted the scene to Marich and exulted, Long live impudence. It is my guardian angel in this world. That night, as he sat down for his last meal at the Nush household, he found a letter for him next to his soup plate. It was from his real-life guardian angel, Marcel Grossmann. The position at the patent office Grossmann wrote, Was about to be advertised, and Einstein was sure to get it. Their lives were soon to be brilliantly changed for the better, and excited Einstein, wrote Maric. I'm dizzy with joy when I think about it, he said. I'm even happier for you than for myself. Together we'd surely be the happiest people on the earth. That still left the issue of what to do about their baby, who was due to be born in less than two months by early February 1902. The only problem that would remain to be solved would be how to keep our liseral with us, Einstein, who had begun referring to their unborn child as a girl, wrote to Marich, who had returned home to have the baby at her parents' house in Novi Sad. I wouldn't want to have to give her up. It was a noble intention on his part, yet he knew that it would be difficult for him to show up for work in barren with an illegitimate child. Ask your papa. He's an experienced man and knows the world better than your overworked, impractical Johnny. For good measure, he declared that the baby, when born, shouldn't be stuffed with cow milk, because it might make her stupid. Marich's milk would be more nourishing, he said. Although Einstein was willing to consult Marich's family, Einstein had no intention of letting his own family know that his mother's worst fears about his relationship, a pregnancy and possible marriage, were materializing. His sister seemed to realize that he and Maritch were secretly planning to be married, and she told this to members of the Wintler family in Arau. But none of them showed any sign of suspecting that a child was involved. Einstein's mother learned about the purported engagement from Mrs. Wintler. We are resolutely against Albert's relationship with Fräulein Maritch, and we don't ever wish to have anything to do with her, Paulina Einstein lamented. Einstein's mother even took the extraordinary step of writing a nasty letter, signed also by her husband, to Marich's parents. This lady, Marich lamented to a friend about Einstein's mother, seems to have set as her life's goal to embitter as much as possible not only my life, but also that of her son. I could not have thought it possible that there could exist such heartless and outright wicked people. They felt no compunctions about writing a letter to my parents, in which they reviled me in a manner that was a disgrace. The official advertisement announcing the Patent Office opportunity finally appeared in December 1901. The director, Friedrich Holler, apparently tailored the specifications so that Einstein would get the job. Candidates did not need a doctorate, but they must have mechanical training and also know physics. Holler put this in for my sake, Einstein told Marich. Haller wrote Einstein a friendly letter, making it clear that he was the prime candidate, and Grossmann called to congratulate him. There's no doubt any more, Einstein exulted to Marit. Soon you'll be my happy little wife. Just watch. Now our troubles are over. Only now that this terrible weight is off my shoulders do I realize how much I love you. Soon I'll be able to take my dolly in my arms and call her my own in front of the whole world. He made her promise, however, that marriage would not turn them into a comfortable bourgeois couple. We'll diligently work on science together, so we don't become old Philistines, right? Even his sister, he felt, was becoming so crass in her approach to creature comforts. you better not get that way, he told Marich. It would be terrible. You must always be my witch and street urchin. Everyone but you seems foreign to me, as if they were separated from me by an invisible wall. In anticipation of getting the Patent Office job, Einstein abandoned the student he had been tutoring in Schaffhausen and moved to Bern in late January 1902. He would be forever grateful to Grossmann, whose aid would continue in different ways over the next few years. Grossmann is doing his dissertation on a subject that is related to non-Euclidean geometry, Einstein noted to Marich. I don't know exactly what it is. A few days after Einstein arrived in Bern. Maleva Maric, staying at her parents' home in Novi Sad, gave birth to their baby, a girl, whom they called Lieserl. Because the childbirth was so difficult, Maric was unable to write to him. Her father sent Einstein the news. Is she healthy, and does she cry properly? Einstein wrote Maric. What are her eyes like? Which one of us does she more resemble? Who is giving her milk? Is she hungry? She must be completely bald. I love her so much and don't even know her yet. Yet his love for their new baby seemed to exist mainly in the abstract, for it was not quite enough to induce him to make the train trip to Novi Sad. Einstein did not tell his mother, sister, or any of his friends about the birth of Lisaro. In fact, there is no indication that he ever told them about her. Never once did he publicly speak of her or acknowledge that she even existed. No mention of her survives in any correspondence, except for a few letters between Einstein and Marich, and these were suppressed and hidden until 1986, when scholars and the editors of his papers were completely surprised to learn of Lieserl's existence. The letters were discovered by John Stachel of the Einstein Papers Project, among a cache of four hundred family letters that were stored in a California safe deposit box by the second wife of Einstein's son, Hans Albert Einstein, whose first wife had brought them to California after she went to Zurich to clean out Maleva Maric's apartment following her death in 1948. But in his letter to Maric right after Lieserl's birth, the baby brought out Einstein's wry side. She's certainly able to cry already, but won't know how to laugh until much later, he said. Therein lies a profound truth. Fatherhood also focused him on the need to make some money while he waited to get the Patent Office job. So, the next day, an ad appeared in the newspaper, Private Lessons in Mathematics and Physics, given most thoroughly by Albert Einstein, holder of the Federal Polytechnic Teacher's Diploma. Trial Lessons Free. Lieserl's birth even caused Einstein to display a domestic nesting instinct not previously apparent. He found a large room in Bern, and drew for Maric a sketch of it, complete with diagrams showing the bed, six chairs, three cabinets, himself, Johnny, and a couch marked, Look at that! However, March was not going to be moving into it with him. They were not married, and an aspiring Swiss civil servant could not be seen cohabitating in such a way. Instead, after a few months, Marich moved back to Zurich to wait for him to get a job, and, as promised, marry her she did not bring Lieserl with her. Einstein and his daughter, apparently, never laid eyes on each other. She would merit, as we shall see, just one brief mention in their surviving correspondence less than two years later, in September 1903, and then not be referred to again. In the meantime, she was left back in Novi Sad with her mother's relatives or friends, so that Einstein could protect both his unencumbered lifestyle— and the bourgeois respectability he needed to become a Swiss official. There is a cryptic hint that the person who took custody of Lieserl may have been Maric's close friend, Helena Kofler Savic, whom she had met in 1899 when they lived in the same rooming house in Zurich. Savic was from a Viennese Jewish family, and had married an engineer from Serbia in 1900. During her pregnancy, Maric had written her a letter pouring out all of her woes, but she tore it up before mailing it. She was glad she had done so, she explained to Einstein, two months before Lieserl's birth, because I don't think we should say anything about Lieserl yet. Maric added that Einstein should write Savic a few words now and then. We must now treat her very nicely. She'll have to help us in something important, after all. THE PATENT OFFICE as he was waiting to be offered the job at the patent office, Einstein ran into an acquaintance who was working there. The job was boring, the person complained, and he noted that the position Einstein was waiting to get was the lowest rank. So at least he didn't have to worry that anyone else would apply for it. Einstein was unfazed. Certain people find everything boring, Einstein told Marich. As for the disdain about being on the lowest rung, Einstein told her that they should feel just the opposite. We couldn't care less about being on top. The job finally came through on June sixteenth, nineteen 1902, when a session of the Swiss Council officially elected him provisionally as a technical expert Class three of the Federal Office for Intellectual Property with an annual salary of 3,500 francs, which was actually more than what a junior professor would make. His office in Barron's new postal and telegraph building was near the world-famous clock tower over the old city gate. As he turned left out of his apartment on his way to work, Einstein walked past it every day. The clock was originally built shortly after the city was founded in 1191, and an astronomical contraption featuring the positions of the planets was added in 1530. Every hour, the clock would put on its show. Out would come a dancing jester ringing bells, then a parade of bears, a crowing rooster, and an armored knight, followed by Father Time with his scepter and